Welcome to the first Commission podcast, a place to hear talks, teaching, and conversations from across the Commission network. We begin this week with the main session talks from Revive 2018. Today we hear from Tim Keller, friend of Commission and pastor emeritus of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York. Tim Keller will speak here at Revive 2018, preaching from Acts 8, verses 26 to 40. This is a text I've come back to over and over again in my life, and I'm, I was just delighted when Richard asked me to, to uh, expound it to you and, and share it with you. Um, I'd like to move through this text, this great story, by noting, first of all, that Christianity is the most culturally welcoming and inclusive of all religions. Christianity is the most inclusive faith, but then secondly, Christianity is the most exclusive faith, and thirdly, why Christianity is the most inclusive because it's the most exclusive. Okay, got those three points? It's the most inclusive, it's the most exclusive, and it's the most inclusive because it's the most exclusive. The first point is the longest, the second point is the shortest, and the third point is the best. (laughs) I just thought you would want to to know what's coming. Let's talk about the inclusivity of Christianity. You should always start looking at a narrative by asking who are the main figures and what's the main action. And there's two main figures. The primary figure, I guess we would say the, 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 uh, the main figure of this story, is an Ethiopian eunuch. And what we know about him, at least this, we'll start with this. First of all, Ethiopia at that time meant the, the place in Africa between about Aswan and Khartoum, which has also been called Nubia. And so what we do know about this man is he was a black African. Secondly, we know he was a, a eunuch. Now, the reason he was a eunuch, it, it actually explains. He was an important official in charge of the treasury of the Kandasi, of Kandaki. We're not sure. I don't know how to pronounce it either. Uh, the queen of the Ethiopians. If you were going to be working with the royals, but you were not actually a member of the royal family, you were not in the, in the, in the uh, lineage, the only way that they would let you do that and really come into a place of power was if you were castrated if you're a eunuch. Why? Because what if you had a liaison with a member of the royal family and then you had children and then suddenly there would be a rival line? Uh, No, no, no. If you want to be part of the power and you're not actually already a member of the royal family, then we need to be absolutely sure that you do not uh, have sex with somebody and and bear children and therefore uh, uh, being castrated was the... uh, was the only way into that kind of power, and he had. And he was, when it says he was in charge of all the treasury, he was the CFO of the country. So he was in a, a place of great power. So there is an African unit, uh, there's an African, black African, castrated, high official. In every way, this man is different than the other figure of this story, which is Philip. Philip is not powerful and rich, uh, he's middle class. Philip is not black. He's white. He's Jewish. And uh, also, Philip has not been sexually altered. So what you actually have here are two people who could, could not be more different. Uh, especially when you consider that Jewish men in that time often got up and prayed this prayer. Oh, Lord, I thank you. You didn't make me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Um, And uh, here we have somebody who is black. Here we have somebody who is certainly a Gentile. Here we have somebody who's sexually altered. Uh, This is not the kind of person that Philip would ordinarily hang out with. 
These are people who would never, ever come together, never see each other. But here's what the main action is. The main action is not only that they have an encounter that they meet, but that in every, commentators and expositors have always noticed, every single facet of this encounter is supernaturally driven. Now, God certainly is, the, is sovereign over history, and God, all sorts of things happen according to God's will, simply through his providential uh, overruling or his, uh, his uh, sovereign control of history. But notice that every single aspect of this particular uh, encounter is supernatural. So, for example, in verse 26, the only reason he's on that road is that the angel of the Lord told Philip to go down that road. So he would not, it's not he just happened to be going down the road. No, the angel of the Lord told him. The angel of the Lord told him. So, first of all, just being there was uh, you know, a supernatural direction. And then, of course, at the very end, it's kind of interesting. At verse 39, it says, When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away. Uh, commentators and expositors for years have tried to figure out quite what that meant. That Literally, the, the Greek word there is the Holy Spirit seized him and took him away. Some people say it means he vanished. Some people mean it just meant he, he left abruptly. Uh, but the point is that, that uh, in, the, in the beginning and in the end, this is a supernaturally charged and directed event. And in the middle, verse 29, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And then it says, then Philip ran to the chariot. Now, let me give you a, <laughs> let me give you a, a good picture of what's happening here. Notice it doesn't say uh, the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. And Philip walked up to it. It doesn't say that. It says he ran. Why would he run? See, if the Ethiopian was, was standing in his chariot and the chariot was stationary, then if the spirit said to uh, Philip, uh, go up and stay near the chariot, Philip would have just walked up and stood near the chariot. Well, why is Philip running? Because the chariot's moving. Look carefully. Because the chariot's moving. So the chariot's moving along. Why would, it, why would it not? And Philip's on the road. And there's absolutely no way in the world that Philip would ever have any kind of interaction with a chariot's moving along and it's, a, it's an Ethiopian eunuch. But God, the Holy Spirit says, go and stay near it. And the only way to stay near a moving chariot is to run. So you know what's going on? Here is it. Hi. <laughs> Hello. I see you're, you're reading the Bible. Yes, I'm reading the Isaiah scroll. Do you understand what you're reading? I said, actually, no, I'm having a lot of trouble understanding what I'm reading. Uh, well, could I help you? And yeah, so see, the chariot stops and he gets up in the chariot. Again, if the chariot was just stationary, there's no reason why he couldn't have that conversation. You know, in other words, it's fascinating that the Holy Spirit is saying this. I want believers to welcome people of other races. You see, the, the Spirit of God wants so strongly that Christians open their arms, welcome, and speak to people of different races and different cultures. That's the language of the Spirit. Do everything it takes to stay near that man so that you can read the Bible together. Look at what he had to do to do it. But that's the language of the Spirit, you see? Uh, the language, the, the Spirit of God wants Christians to break barriers, get out of our comfort zones, be dealing with people and embracing people of different races, or let's put it negatively. We know that the, the Spirit is grieved when we do things that grieve the heart of God. 
The spirit is grieved then if we aren't like this. You see, you see how much work it takes <laughs> to get into even a conversation about the Bible with a person of a different race? Here's the language of the spirit. Philip, go up to that black African sexually altered person and do everything it takes to stay close enough so that he finally will have a conversation with you about what's in the word of God. Now, I don't know, frankly, how the spirit is speaking to you about this, but this is the language of the spirit. This is what the spirit wants. And if actually, if you read, if you put this in the context, I know I'm not reading this in because if you put it in the context of, of the, of the rest of Acts, uh, look in Acts chapter eight, the first part, Samaritans believe for the first time. Acts chapter nine, you're going to see a, a Pharisee believe for the first time. Uh, uh, in Acts chapter 10, God has to almost literally yell, give a vision to Peter to get him to go to a group of Gentiles. Basically, the book of Acts is all about God with his Holy Spirit. It takes the Spirit, shaking Christians to break through cultural barriers and racial barriers to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. It's just not easy. It's not our norm. We don't go there. Uh, it's, it's very, very difficult. And the Spirit is saying, it doesn't matter what it takes. <laughs> Run alongside of that chariot. I mean, you know, Philip must have thought, I'm, I'm, a, what am I, I'm an idiot. I must look like an idiot here. And he did look like an idiot. But that's what it took. So, so now here's what's important. The book of Acts is saying that God wants the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit wants the, the gospel to go to every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. And this part of the book of Acts in this particular text is telling us not only that, but also that therefore the gospel doesn't belong to any one group, doesn't belong to any one race, does not belong to any one culture. The gospel belongs to every race, to every culture. What do I mean by that? Um, Laman Sané was an African professor. He's now retired. He was at Yale. He, he was, uh, I think... I believe he was from Ghana. I don't remember, but I do know he was raised a Muslim. He became a Christian. He eventually came and taught at Yale Divinity School in, um, uh, in the United States. But he wrote a terrific little book some years ago called Whose Religion is Christianity? Whose Religion is Christianity? And the point of his book is that Christianity is essentially the most culturally inclusive religion because Christianity doesn't belong to any one culture. Now in the book, he makes a, a, an interesting point, and actually I've seen this elsewhere. Uh, every other religion, major religion but Christianity, has essentially stayed fairly close to its cultural uh, point of origin. So uh, this may be hard for those of you in the UK to believe, but 95% of all Muslims actually, all 95% of all Muslims still live in the Middle East, Africa, or South Asia. So there's a, they live in a, 95% of them live in a band this way and that way from its point of origin. 88% of Buddhists live in the Far East. 98% of Hindus live in, uh, in India. But as soon as you get to Christianity, something's very different. Because something like, roughly speaking, and of course there's all sorts of different ways of counting, something like 25% of Christians, professing Christians, are in Central and South America. And the Caribbean, something like 22% are in Africa, something like 23% are in Europe, something like 15% of all Christians in the world are in Asia, and that number is growing very, very fast. Uh, maybe only about 12% of all Christians in the world are in North America. But here's the point. There is no other religion that looks like that. 
Every other religion looks like basically a religion that grew out of a particular culture. But Christianity claims that it comes down from above. And it belongs to no one culture, which means it belongs to everyone in every culture, that everyone in every culture should embrace the gospel. Or another way to put it is Christianity comes down from above and recreates itself in every particular culture. And as Richard Balkum, who used to teach the New Testament at the uh, University of St. Andrews, says about these numbers, he says, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion, and that must say something about it. Absolutely, it says something about it. Now, we're going we're gonna to get to the end. I'm going to explain why Christianity is so culturally inclusive, but let's just stop here for a second and see that it is. It is always, it, it's the only really universal world religion. It's the only religion that has incarnated itself in all these different places. We're going to explain why. But now, just for now, let's step back and realize that that's the case. And Laman Sonic gives one wonderful little example of this. And then we'll move on to point two. But the wonderful little example I'll tell you. He says, he says now, he says, he's an African. So he says at the heart of Africanness is a belief that the world is filled with spirits. We understand, he said, the world in supernatural terms. We see good spirits, we see evil spirits, we see spirits. Now, what if that African, an African, goes off to Oxford or Cambridge? or Harvard, or Yale, or Princeton. Now, when they get there, and they're getting their Western secular education, uh, what the secular people are going to say is, oh, we're, oh, we are so inclusive. We are all for diversity. And we want you to wear your African dress, and we want you to eat your African food, and we want to celebrate your Africanness. But, by the way, there are no evil spirits. There are no good spirits. Uh, there's no God. Uh, there's no supernatural world at all. Actually, everything has a scientific explanation. But we just love your Africanness. And what Laman Sane says, in other words, is, oh, we want to celebrate diversity, says the secular people. And we're really big and inclusive, except we're going to take the heart out of your very culture, the very heart out of your Africanness. And we're going to just turn you into a secular European. But he says, is that how the gospel works? Here's what the gospel does. The gospel comes and says, oh, absolutely, there are evil spirits. Absolutely, there's a supernatural realm. Absolutely, there are good and evil spirits. But Jesus Christ, on the cross, defeated the principalities and powers. And this is the only way you will not be sunk into the foolishness of superstition and all the kinds of charms and the things like that that you think are going to ward off the, the evil spirits. No, no. There absolutely is a spirit world, but Christ is the Lord of the spirit world. And he has triumphed over the spirit world. And on the cross, he defeated the principalities and powers. And this is what Laman Sane says. He says, Africans sensed in their hearts that Jesus did not mock the way the secularists did, did not mock their respect for the sacred, nor their clamor for an invincible savior. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. Christianity helped Africans become renewed Africans, not remade Europeans. And my point, Christianity is far more inclusive than secularism. It's far more inclusive than, than the people who are always talking about inclusiveness. Because Christianity comes down from above. It's a, secularism, again, is a culture. And it says, oh, we're all for inclusivism, but you've got to be like us or we're not going to treat you as enlightened, which means I'm just going to flatten your culture and you're going to have to become like me. In that sense, all these other cultures tend to flatten. Christianity actually comes in and renews you. If you become a Christian, 
and you're Chinese, you don't stop being Chinese. If you become a Christian and you're African, you don't stop being African. However, you're a Christian first and you're Chinese second. You're a Christian first and you're African or European or British or American second. And what that does is it just lifts you just a little out of your culture so you can critique it. But it keeps you in your culture. It doesn't efface that. But no longer does that define you. It's Christ that defines you. And what that does is it gives you both the insider and the outsider's look at once. And it creates cultural flexibility and it creates cultural diversity, not just cultural reductivism. So Christianity, arguably, in fact, maybe even statistically, is the most inclusive of all faiths and philosophies. It's the job of the Holy Spirit to recreate Christianity in the soil of every tongue, tribe, people, and nation. Therefore, the most, it is the most inclusive of all faiths. And it's more inclusive than secularism, contrary to what people say. But now point two. Second thing you have to see here is as inclusive as Christianity is, it's the most actually exclusive religion too. This is my shorter point because I, think, I don't think I have to belabor that to this crowd. But let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, when the African finally turns to Philip and says, what is this about? You know, what is this text about? The, um, Philip does not say, well, you know, you're going to have to figure, you know, Philip does not do the kind of postmodern literary uh, reader, reader response thing. And he doesn't say, well, you know, you have to create the meaning of the text yourself. No, he says, I'll tell you what this means. This is about Jesus. See? He tells them the good news about Jesus. Jesus, Philip says, is the interpretive principle that holds the whole Bible together. If you want to understand the Bible, if you understand what the Bible's about, you've got to understand Jesus because Jesus will make sense of the whole Bible. It's all about him. So that's pretty exclusive. And I'll tell you why it's pretty exclusive. Because every other religion has a founder who says, I'm a prophet or I'm a sage and I'm here to tell you about how to find God. Only Christianity has a founder who says, no, 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 I'm not here to tell you about how to find God. I'm God, come to find you. Now you realize that if every religion says, well, I'm not God, I'm just a founder, I'm Buddha, I'm I'm Muhammad, I'm a prophet, I'm a sage. Uh, Technically, you could maybe make the case that all those religions are different ways of getting up the mountain to God. You could maybe make that case. Because everyone is saying, oh, I'm not God. Every founder is saying, I'm just, I'm showing you what you have to do to find God, what you have, how you have to live to find God, how you have to save yourself, but how you have to find God. And you could almost, if that's, if that, those are the only religions we had, take Christianity out, you could almost make the case that every religion was another way up the mountain. But see, when Jesus Christ comes and says, no, 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 I am God. I'm the God at the top of the mountain. And you could never get up that mountain by your good works. I've come to save you. I've come to find you. Now, that claim means either Christianity is the best, it's the true religion, or it's a complete sham. There's nothing in the middle. It can't just be one more way up the mountain. It can't be. And therefore, actually, Christianity, though culturally the most inclusive, which you can almost prove by the numbers, culturally the most inclusive of all the faiths, the most welcoming of people of different faiths and religions uh, and, and races and cultures, Nevertheless, it's the most exclusive. In fact, he baptizes the eunuch. And of course, we all know, I hope you know, that baptism is not just a way of you deciding now how you want to live your life. Baptism means I stop living the way I want to live and I live the way the Lord wants me to live. I belong to the Lord. You know, I'm engaged to be the Lord's. 
That's what, that's what baptism is. And so the text that shows us how inclusive Christianity is, the most inclusive, also shows us it's the most exclusive. It points to all the ways in which it's the most exclusive of all the, the faiths. So point three, the best point, by the way. I want to show you that it's the most inclusive because it is the most exclusive. And here's the point. It's the most exclusive because it says salvation is exclusively by grace. By grace alone. Not by grace with a few other things. By grace alone. Because it's exclusively grace salvation. That's what Christianity is. That's what makes it so inclusive. How do I say? Well, let's look a little bit more at the eunuch. Uh, I, ha- you know, I tried to ex- say, who is this man? But I-, I kind of ignored a couple of really important points. It tells us that, up here in verse 27, that this man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. That is an absolutely striking and somewhat inexplicable statement. We don't quite know. It depends where he was in Ethiopia. But this is a man who at that time made approximately a thousand mile journey to go to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. A thousand miles. Now, there's two reasons why that is absolutely astounding. Number one, of course, is just taking a trip like that at that time of, uh, you know, in history would have been so arduous. The chances of being killed or something going wrong are very high, very dangerous to make such a long journey. But secondly, to leave your place of power, you know what it was like. The, the way the royals were back then, they're not like this anymore, of course. But, I mean, the point was that there was always intrigue and jealousy and coup d'etats and things like that. And so if you had a place of power and you really weren't there by, by inherited lineage, uh, why in the world would you leave for months at least your, your position? What was it driving this man? Now, I have to say, I'm going to be careful here because we're going to have to speculate a bit. The text doesn't tell us, but that very statement means there's an emptiness or something going on there. Why would an Ethiopian be that interested in the God of Israel? There must be something going wrong in his own life. There must be some kind of emptiness. But here's what we do know, that when he got there, here's what we absolutely know. He wouldn't have been allowed to go in because he was a eunuch. He was castrated. And the Mosaic law said that anyone who's castrated cannot go into the assembly. They can't be in there. So he would have done this. Something was driving him. Some kind of inner need was driving him to make this incredibly dangerous journey. And he would have got there and he would have been turned away. Now, why on the way back would he have been reading the Isaiah scroll? Now, in light of who he is. And in light of the sacrifices he made, now you know what he had done was he had sacrificed enormously because he lived at a time in which family was everything. It would have been certainly true in Africa. I actually heard Stephen refer to it a little bit, but certainly true everywhere in the world at that time was basically you you had a family or you had nothing. You only lived on through your descendants. You only had security. You only had honor and glory if you had lots of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Family was everything. But this man, as a young man, had obviously thought, oh, it's okay. What I really want is I want money and power. And he had money and power. But as maybe time went on, perhaps, I'm speculating here, he began to feel like an outsider in his own world. He began to feel lonely. He began to feel empty. 
And so he comes to, the, to, to Jerusalem, and he's excluded. And he's on his way back, and he's reading the Isaiah scroll. Now, in light of this story, in light of who he is, now look what he's reading. Verse 32. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. And who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. Don't you realize this eunuch would have been reading along and saying, who is this person? He has no descendants, just like me. See, if you're reading the Isaiah scroll, you couldn't just be reading chapter 53. He would have virtually had to also read chapter 56. And in chapter 56, this is what we read. Let no foreigner say, the Lord will exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree, fruitless. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuchs who hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give a name better than sons and daughters, an everlasting name that will never be cut off. Can you imagine his reaction when he sees this, when it says, let no eunuch say I'm only a dry tree. And then to say to the eunuchs who keep my covenant, I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. He would have been sitting there saying, wait a minute. I have no idea how anyone can have a lasting name without sons and daughters. How in the world could you have a lasting name without sons and daughters? And then he begins to see, as he's reading part of this part of the scroll, this mysterious figure called the servant. The servant songs of Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 and Isaiah 53, of course. Who is this servant? And then he begins to realize the servant is voluntarily suffering. Not only that, the servant is voluntarily becoming like a eunuch. Who can speak of his descendants? In cultural terms, in his own cultural terms, he is being told about a salvation beyond only power and beyond only family. All he knew was, I can be satisfied if I have power and money, or I can be satisfied if I have family and I have descendants. And we're being, he's being told there is, there's a way of getting an everlasting name. There's a way of becoming, there, there is a way of salvation. There is a way of salvation that goes beyond power, beyond family. And as he's reading, he sees this servant seems to be the key. This servant who seems to voluntarily becomes a lamb who is slain and he becomes like a eunuch because he has no descendants. And he seems to be doing it all in order to bear the transgressions of others. And along comes Philip and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, no, I don't. Come on up here. And this is the question. Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? Is the prophet talking about himself or someone else? And Philip says, oh yes. He's talking about somebody very, very, very else. <laughs> someone unique. Someone unlike anyone else. And he says, look, I, I, maybe this is what Philip said. Oh, my African friend, do you not see that the Mosaic law by excluding you from the temple was just pointing to something? It excludes lepers, it excludes eunuchs, it excludes women who are having their period, it excludes all kinds of people. But don't you see, it's really basically making a point that we, none of us deserve the presence of God. There's, all of us have got something that excludes us. All of us have something that disqualifies us. And that none of us deserve the presence of God. But here is one who has come. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And he 
became a eunuch for the eunuchs, no descendants. He became a leper for the lepers. He was cast out of the city. He became a sinner for us sinners. He was excluded on the cross. He said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was excluded. So those of us who deserve to be excluded can be finally brought in and included. And so the eunuch says, this is for me. Now, do you understand? Let let, let me just, just take the last minute or two here. Do you understand why, because salvation is strictly by grace, exclusively by grace, you don't do anything to earn or deserve it. Christ got everything you deserved. Do you see why that's so inclusive? In two ways, it's inclusive. One, of course, is that the New Testament doesn't have a book of Leviticus, does it? Why do you think all the rules-oriented religions that say you have to earn your salvation have got so many rules? You can't eat this, you can't drink this, you can't do this, you, there are all these things. Why? Because they're saving themselves. Well, you know what that means? Rules flatten culture. Rules say, oh, you're Chinese, but you can't eat that stuff anymore. You have to eat this stuff. Rules say, oh, you, you know, you're African, but you can't, you, you, know, you can't dress like that. You have to dress like this. So rules just flatten culture. But because we're saved by grace, we don't, have all, we don't need all of those things as ways of you know, anxiously trying to merit our salvation. So you don't have a book of Leviticus. That makes us more culturally open there. But here's the main thing. Whenever somebody comes to me and uh, says, oh, I hate how you Christians uh, are so exclusive. I say, what do you mean? Well, you believe you have to believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. I say, yes, of course you have to believe in Jesus. That's terrible. That's so exclusive. I say, well, what do you believe? I believe, they say, all good people can be saved. I believe that any good person, whatever religion, or whether no religion at all, all good people can be saved and go to heaven. I say, wow, well, that leaves me out. I said, boy, that's, that's one of the most exclusive things I've ever heard of. And they said, what are you talking about? I said, well, that means the good people are in the bad people. About. What about the rest of us? What about those of us who had terrible childhoods? What about people who, who grew up in abusive homes? You know, they may pull themselves together, but they're always going to have problems. What about the broken? What about the poor? What about all these people? They're never going to sort of pull themselves together. That is the most exclusive thing I've ever heard. The idea that any good person can go to heaven. No, no, no. Jesus Christ... Because you can only believe in him. There's the exclusivity. And you can only be saved by grace. There's the exclusivity. But you know what that means? It's the most inclusive religion. I don't care if you're a prostitute. I don't care if you were a hitman for the mafia. I don't care if you killed people for a living. You can be saved. Because it's so exclusive. Exclusively Jesus and exclusively grace. It is the most culturally inclusive. It is the most inclusive of all religions. It embraces all. The doctrine of substitutionary atonement, which is what you have there in uh, uh, Isaiah 53, that Jesus Christ didn't just love us or in some general way. He was excluded for us. He paid the penalty. He took the wrath of God. We, we were, he was driven out. He was excluded. That's what changed the eunuch, and that's what will change you and me. Uh, some of you know one of my favorite stories about this, because I use it occasionally, is a story at the end of uh, the... Uh, Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, um, where you have these two men, Sidney Carton and Charles Darnay, who actually look alike, or a lot alike. Charles Darnay uh, is in the, uh, I guess, the Bastille. Anyways, he's in the dungeon. He's, he's, uh, he's in prison, and he's about to be beheaded in the French Revolution. He's about to be beheaded the next day. 
but he's, he's got a wife and he's got a child. And Sidney Carton, who looks like Charles Denet, is a single man. So Sidney Carton steals in to the prison, gets Charles Darnay out, puts his hat down over his face to try to uh, uh, play Charles Darnay in order to go to the guillotine the next day and die to save him and his family. So he's over there huddled in the corner hoping nobody notices that he's really not Charles Darnay. Some little, some young girl, a seamstress I think she was, who was also condemned to die the next day, comes up and knows Charles Darnay and tries to start talking with him. And of course, Sidney Carton is moving this way and this way to stay away. And finally, she looks at him and she realizes it's somebody else in Charles's place. And her eyes get big like saucers. And she says, are you dying for him? And he says, Shh, yes, and for his wife and child. And she says, stranger, I am frightened to face my death tomorrow. But could I stand by you? Could you hold my hand? Because I think if I could hold the hand of someone as brave as you, that I might be able to face it. See, she was transformed by the beauty of his substitutionary sacrifice. And it wasn't even for her. How much more will you and I be transformed by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ for us, who was excluded so we can be brought in? How much more will that change us into people who know how to welcome folks who are different? Know how to welcome even people that maybe our own culture would have excluded, or maybe our own family would have excluded. But how could we ever, ever treat anybody like outsiders and marginalized people? How could we treat any of them like that? The substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ will make you into a welcoming Christian, will make you into welcoming churches. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for uh, the, the wonderful way in which your book of Acts shows us that you want every tongue, tribe, people, and nation to be part of your church. You want uh, the Holy, this Holy Spirit to be opening hearts and converting people. Uh, in, uh, in every nation, every culture. And then we, are, we must be humbly learning from each other. No one of our cultures own your, the, the Christian faith. Uh, the, the faith does not belong to any of us. It belongs to you. But it has come into our lives and it's changed us. And now we pray that you'd make us part of this great worldwide movement. Truly, through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Tomorrow, Stephen Musakomier on Romans 10. For more on Commission's commitment to cross-cultural mission in London and to the world, visit us at commission.org/mission.